G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. Here we are, at the end of Season 2. And for it, I'm going to give you an extended chat as part of a launch that will be happening at the Adelaide Fringe in 2021 of this very band that you'll be hearing from. The guest, in fact, has other bands, but in fact, I've tried to focus the chat just on this one band so you get a real sense of the music that you can see live at the Adelaide Fringe. With the end of the season coming up, I'm also going to be taking a bit of a break and focusing on some radio-type commitments that I've got. So there may be a delay in the following season getting onto the feed, and apologies in advance for that. But for now, let's head into our feature guest for today. Everlata have just released and about to officially launch their new album, Rum with the Hunted. Matt Carhill of the group, who, as you'll hear, has a long history playing music in numerous bands, invited John into his studio space where the record was created, which is also near the coastal area of the Fleurier Peninsula, for this close to two-hour unscripted chat. Matt Carhill, welcome to Radio Notes. Oh, thanks for having me, John. The band started a few years after the dissolution of my previous band. I had a swag of songs that I had written for my previous band. They didn't fit. They didn't really suit that kind of rock environment. And I wanted to find um, an arena to have them surface and get workshopped. Are we talking about scrapbooks, hard drives, or just in the back of your head? Where were those tunes at that stage? Oh, no, at that stage they were definitely in my head and scrawlings on, on bits of paper. But I, I've, I've always had a definite view of how they should arrive. I wanted to have a more collaborative environment that people could come and go within to make these things happen. Talk to me about that need to get the song out in some form that now has become this band. I believed in the songs and I think you just want to hear them come to life. I um, hung on to them. I did eventually, I think in about 2006, 2007, I started uh, working with the software that would demo them very roughly. And from that point, I would contact various different players and say, look, I'm trying to put a record together. You know, are you interested? <laughs> um, the record that we are talking about today going to be run with The Hunter. There is about oh, maybe... 100 or so vinyls left. Let's start with that. It is available on the Spotify's and the Apple Music, the more compressed format. Where did the passion for vinyl start? Oh, well, you know, obviously when I was a kid, I got my very first record player when I was 10. It was a radiogram, which was um, given to me on my 10th birthday by my grandmother. I used to wake up in the morning, put the radio on and listen to the news, just like my grandparents did. And I'll never forget actually hearing the news the morning Elvis died because that was my very first record on Radio Cram was Elvis's greatest hits. <laughs> Did you run to your record collection to make sure it was still there or not cracked? Oh, my record collection at 10 was about five records. I think my dad gave me some old Holly's records that he wasn't interested in anymore and stuff. But it's funny, the things that were given to me, <laughs> they really shaped my um, future I was only telling this story recently. My father was a teacher and he had his headmaster around for a barbecue. And I had a cassette player, the one speaker job, and I was playing 
ABBA arrival for the family at the barbecue and all that. And maybe on the second or third play of that, the headmaster's wife came up and she said, oh, you know, do you think I could offer you some music to put on? And I said, oh, sure, you know. And she gave me um, Hunky Dory and Pinups by David Bowie. <laughs> and that, that was a life-changing moment at 11. When they were leaving, I sort of reluctantly handed them to her, you know, and she said, I think you need them more than I do. I think you better hang on to them. <laughs> that was the beginning, really, for me. And vinyl, yeah, just a passion. It's like 16mm film as opposed to high def. Let's get back to the announcement of Elvis's death. What did that news mean to you as a future singer-songwriter performer? I don't know. It was just so far-reaching, like, the effect that he had on people, especially for, for someone who never toured out of his own country. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... As a kid, I'd watch all his films and whatever. But then I realised that with music was this thing called fame. I think probably further reaching than that, I think my mother had given me Rock and Roll by John Lennon probably only about two weeks before he died. And I remember coming home and she was crying at the kitchen table and I'll never forget that. You have these moments, especially when you're into music you have these moments in history that sort of like landmarks what do you think it is about those artists particularly those of the rock and roll kind when they pass that is so visceral into our memories is it the fact that we think we've shared some life with them what's your view on that yeah it's funny like the night that kurt cobain died we were playing for polygram records that night we were actually doing a show for their a and r guy and when I got home, and my friend called me, and he said, oh, man, you wouldn't believe it, but Kurt Cobain. Mm. I was, like, so shocked because I thought he had everything that I wanted. <laughs> and then I realised that, no, there's probably something about all that that I can't see. But, you know, slowly over the years, I mean, I've, I've realised that I'm really not interested in any of that stuff. Um, our team at the record company were often frustrated at the fact that Jeremy and I were more interested in the B-sides than we were in in the Mm A-sides, you know what I mean? We were more interested in exploring music and, you know, as a texture rather than a formatted single for for the radio. And I think that often frustrated people around us, you know. I'll let you in on a little secret. I've frustrated many a record company PR in my time by playing a (laughs) B-side. Give you a tip. If you're going to send me three tracks, I'm likely not going to play the single, if it's better. That's right. Just sure. because it's six minutes doesn't yeah. mean it shouldn't be on yeah. air. Yeah. Now, that's your former band. Now, that very essence that you're mm. talking about mm. there, mm. is that what became the drive for putting this band together also, is to have an outlet for the longer songs? For the art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you no longer have that pressure of having to put out a single for the radio and have it do well, and you can really do whatever you like, it's so liberating. <laughs> It's far more attractive than fame, especially in this studio. You know, I can crack a bottle of wine and spend eight hours in here and still get a result that, you know, it's not dependent on performing well or, you know, it's purely for my own. It's like, you know, painting with music. I can do whatever I like. It doesn't matter. That's what they did in the 60s and 70s. It worked for them. Yeah, absolutely. Something goes on in the the witching hour. (laughs) You have... 
you have a feeling that's going to happen again, that we're going to get our attention spans back, that we're not going to be so much into the instant gratification, rock and roll, three-minute pop songs? Look, I think all of that stuff has its place everywhere in music. It has, um, just look at Spotify, look at playlisting and all that kind of thing, you know, like, you know, essentially that's just a mixtape that handing around to each other and from the creation of it angle, I'd, I'd be making this music if no one was listening. You know, it's not going to kill me. <laughs> it's just a, a compulsion that can't be denied. For me, personally, I think I annoy people with how much I want to create music, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe. But for me, I had a childhood that I didn't really enjoy. and Well, let's talk about that. What, what was going on there? Oh, just It was just, uh, you know, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't anything that was that sinister that, uh, you know, it needs to be detailed or anything like that. No. But at the same time, I was a fairly depressed kid. The further I got into music, the happier I got. So it, for me, it's, it's a kind of peace. When I'm in it, it's like being in a trance. When you're being involved in music. And I think, you know, just because I was endlessly listening as a child it was my favorite thing to do then and still is my favorite thing is to listen to music and to make music and I've spent you know like all of my life trying to be half as good as my heroes and to, to me it's a privilege to be a part of it living up to the standard of these heroes mm. so the question would be who are those heroes is it the David Bowies well yeah it would be Bowie Sylvian Tom Waits anybody that did anything that was painterly I was always interested in the minutiae of the details. You know, I was always reading the production notes and who wrote this song and I was always that kind of depth of interest in who engineered it, where did they get it mastered, <laughs> you know, what is mastering. Like I was always fascinated by the whole what's behind the curtain of just the song. This very record was recorded and engineered in the audio garage yes which i think we're in yeah that's right yeah converted garage before we get to here we'll mm. also mention the work of Sodi pop studios yep. they mixed and mastered this after it's been recorded and engineered within this space was there a bit of back and forth yep. how, how did the mixing and mastering of brett fit into yep. that process brett was assigned to us as our engineer when my previous band signed with krell records and Brett and I hit it off straight away and that was like 25 years ago. I've made every record since with him. I've always been interested in the engineering side of it so I've really just been looking over his shoulder for 25 years to the point where I, I feel like I, I can do a little bit of that on my own now. So in the audio sphere of yep. the record that we can listen to... This is the first one that I've recorded and taken to him. That's Correct. the thing. So we improved it here in this space and just workshopped all the improvisations into what you're hearing on that record. And because we obviously cut many more tracks than what's on there, we had to work with limitations of the format being 18 minutes per side to offer the best sound quality on so, vinyl. So the vision was vinyl first? Oh, 100%, yeah. From the word go, we wanted to give the people that like Evolatar something special. We went to the extent of having... South Australian artist come up with cover art. We had a vision from the start and we tried to 
make it have a personality. So we chose all the tracks out of the many that we recorded to fit each side with that in mind. Talk to me about that passion about having this as a South Australian band and yeah, outfit. Born and raised here in Unley. Been around Australia many, many times, but you know, where you're born, your heart, that's where your heart is. And I've just, and I've also lived in Sydney for many years as well. So I've sort of tasted both sides. Is it true? Was your previous band the first band to play at the Adelaide Big Day Out when it came? Yeah, yeah, we were the first. Our promotional company were Catalyst Promotions. They had a very, very close relationship with Vivian Lees and Ken West. And so they said, well, when we roll into town, who do you want to put forward? Who's the first feet on the stage? And they put us forward. And it was a real honour. And Pete Kuno, who was the head of that, he was very specific about which song he wanted us to play and everything. I'll never forget, he goes, I want you to open up with the chords of this particular track and have it ringing across the crowd. And we did our best to accommodate that. But I, I just remember looking at going, oh, my God, this is insane. You know, like, yeah, so we had some really good times. I met Iggy Pop that day too, which was like... Um... We've got the program here. <laughs> yes. Uh, the program is the size of an LP. It's the it's the 13-inch by 13-inch. Yeah, yeah, when they uh, bothered to spend money. So you hit the stage, stage two at 11.30 a.m. in your former band. And, of course, the Lizard Train back then. Now, Absolutely. Now, I can't see Mark of Cain, but I do see Where's the Pope? Absolutely. <laughs> Life on the Doll. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Exploding White Mice, of yep, course. Sure. We played all yep. these on the radio. Yep. Batteries not included. It was a huge day. Huge. The Janes, they, yep. they were highly commercial yep. and successful. Neptune Lolly Shop, I played them on Breakfast once. They were a terrific band. They were so... Their debut, um, they were unbelievably good. Even I, I'm still friends with Andrew to this day and uh, Chris, actually. And Baba Nagush, <laughs> yeah. uh, Baba Nagush, the song was called Trust, and I played it at my first ever breakfast show oh, on, there you the, go. on the sound of Muesli. Amazing times, <laughs> yes, it was. We will probably talk about those more when we speak with your former band, yeah. Well, I because I do have a story about Eggy Pop when I met him, so that was kind of cool, oh. but I won't go into that right now. <laughs> We were mentioning about Brett obviously doing the mixing and the mastering. And as yep. you said, this is the first time we did most of the work basically in the room we're in. Yep. And you gave it to him. What happened then? Did it then come back to you, then back to him? Oh, no. We co-mixed it together. You know, it was a really it was a really interesting process because, like, there was a, I made a couple of mistakes that I had to come back and rectify and then take it back to him. So Because what we would normally do, we would write the songs in a rehearsal space take them in there we would load in for a couple of weeks record them leave a bit of space i'd bring like instrumentals home figure out how i want to write the lyrics and the melodies go back in record all the vocals separately leave a bit of space come back and mix them but in this instance and because i've moved so far away i mean i'm down near port elliot now it's just so difficult to i mean i had to just to record with my former band i had to stay a couple of weeks the other side of town because we recorded at Wizard Time. Adam Page and co. And James Brown. Thank Fabulous you. engineer. Fabulous. So the main difference was that we did it here in an improvisational style and then we took all the files in there. And so it was just easier to do it here and be able to kind of tweak it here before it goes in there. 
I mentioned string arrangements. Hmm. Where? Where's that come from? Yeah. <laughs> My dad. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I'm wondering. You've got those David Bowie records being given to you. You were listening to Elvis, okay, but string arrangements. No, dad. Dad was a really big opera fan. Almost insufferably. <laughs> like, uh, you know, rest, is that a personality trait? You rest got his soul. From him? Oh no, it's like in terms of I, the I passion just, for music. I just inherited this kind of love of classical because he was right into the classical composers. So if I wasn't listening to my rock or pop or whatever, he would invariably have it on. Mozart, Beethoven. He was um, obsessed in this uh, opera, La Traviata. And I actually ended up, well, I don't know. I think I just, you know, ingested all of that stuff. And so I started developing a fascination for string arrangements. I think maybe in the early days I was trying to impress him to be honest. Somewhere along the line, I truly fell in love with them. And so that's what I do now. I can, I just love doing it. Did it work though? Did you impress him? Yeah, he was ultimately, before he died, he um, did say that he really appreciated a particular arrangement that I had done. So, and I ended up doing um, a season in Don Giovanni with the South Australian Opera Company. I thought I had seen that you were an opera singer. (laughs) I did one season, but it was fabulous. We were driving, my wife and I were driving past it the other day and I said, you know, that's still... A happy place for me that whole it was like five weeks rehearsals and a week of performances but and I would do it again in a heartbeat but I just wanted to experience it and it was a very special time for me he complimented you on the string arrangements but yep. what words were spoken after seeing that performance of yours oh not a lot really I, I said to him he was very um he was very guarded with his praise it's funny because sometimes I'll have this photo of him and me here on the yep. on the studio desk here and sometimes I've when I do <laughs> when I finish a string arrangement I often look at that photograph and uh, I think I reckon he would have liked that one I really do <laughs> I was so proud you know to be able to show him yeah I kind of like you know I go oh you would have liked that one dad that was all right he was heavily into I think really he was probably a lot more um of an influence on me than I, I care to admit. He he was into a Spanish guitarist called Carlos Montoya. And I remember being a little kid and, you know, just seeing him with a classical guitar, not unlike that one there, just like a Yamaha G55A, wide neck, going... <laughs> so it impressed me enough that I sort of try to do a little bit of flicky Spanish sound here and there you know i actually did play a little lick on that record that was a little bit of a homage to him and he really wanted to play piano he invested quite heavily in an expensive piano was like when i was probably about 12 i think he bought a piano it might have been two and a half three thousand dollars just an upright brand new and was that the one that was in the home as well oh no my grandmother had a pianola that was um my earliest memory that's the stool there, actually. My grandfather had it made for my mother. She played as well when she... That was made for my mother when she was about 13, 14. And I would just sit leaning on that stool while my grandmother played piano. So I've always had a really deep love for piano. I'm not that accomplished myself, but my uh, cohort in a volatile, Benjamin Johns, he's unbelievable. I've enjoyed making records with him 
profoundly, actually. Do you get quite emotional working oh, with him? Oh, yeah. I, I like, we've had so many nights in this room, a couple of reds. I'll just go, look, here's the basic structure. Take it away. You know, it's, it's so good. Recording him is, um, is one of my greatest pleasures. You mentioned that the father spent a few grand on the piano back then. Where did this piano live? Like uh, it lived in the, <laughs> it lived in the lounge room, so it was, across from it, the stereo. I'll never forget it. And he would shut the glass doors, and he would play. He would attempt to play late at night, much to um, the dismay of all occupants in the house, because he he really wasn't that good. But he tried so hard. But he would play a, a movement, and then of course break to move to reconfigure his fingers to the next thing and you just lie there going finish it please just finish that phrase or something like that. what do you think the drive was for him to get that piano oh, he loved it. he just loved music like so he thought he could learn it yeah he just uh, assumed that it was something well he, he he was pretty good on guitar and i guess he just thought i never really got to talk to him about it really i'd love to know Somebody asked me, they said, three people, Jed, that you'd love to have a conversation with now. And I went, well, okay. Um, or no, it was three. No, it wasn't three people, Jed. It was three people that you'd love to have a conversation with. And I said, oh, well, obviously Bowie. I was always really intrigued by Paul Keating for some reason. And then I said, and my dad. I think it was because he managed a band called The Shades. And I kind of, I, I just, I liked him. But yeah, and I said, oh, and my dad. Because I, there's things that I'd still like to ask him. There's questions I'd still like to ask him. But he's gone. But I think he just assumed he could play. And I really think he made such a valiant effort. Was there a level of determination in him on other levels as well? Yeah, he, um, his family came out to Australia sort of late 40s having survived Hitler. And he, you know, there was a real determination I asked him one day why his father had um, written John Smith on all his tools. And he said, oh, because he didn't, he didn't want them to know that he had a Polish background because they just made fun of him on the work site. And I was really struck by that. So he was my stepfather. I was raised by my stepfather. They had it, they had it really tough. They had to come out to Australia and establish themselves. And they worked in factories and did it really hard. And when he became a teacher and then subsequently a teacher librarian, he was really big on knowledge, reading and writing beautifully, very adamant that how you carry yourself, basically. What do you think his understanding then, based upon getting a piano, wanting to learn the piano, the determination and the drive that you've mentioned there, mm. what do you think his understanding of the language of music was? I don't really know. I, I know he read books on... He was fascinated by the lives of the composers. He he just held composers in a very high regard. And I guess just as a child, you see your dad doing that, then that's what you do. You think these people are in a lofty position and uh, that you have to be some kind of genius or prodigy to, to reach that position. And I think really, I had a hard time impressing him when I was a kid. I think I, I thought, well, I'll be a rock star and then you'll see me every time you turn the television on and that'll impress you. you know. Like, but over the course of, I don't know how long, I fell deeply in love with music and 
became an artist and didn't really care about that. And then uh, I knew he could see that. He could see that it was something I was always going to do. The place where I was sort of heading mm. was that of you looking up and trying to be as good as those like the Bowies and oh, others that yeah, you're admiring, yeah, 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 right? Sure. Yeah. So I'm wondering at what point do you think you, Matt, will feel full in your accomplishments that other people can look up to you? I don't know. It's like it's it it does feel like a little bit of a never ending quest, but it, it it's a journey I don't like I don't mind making. With music, like I would hear Bowie, and then I would hear um, something else. Like I remember when I found Sylvian, I was like, "Oh my god, this is an- another level of complexity here," and it's sort of you you up your game a bit, and then you find other artists. Like I'm currently listening to Exit North, which is Thomas Finer and and Sylvian's brother, and there's yet another level of complexity and so music's like it's just an adventure and also that connection you said brothers as well sure and trying to figure out that puzzle of what they might have shared as they grew up i've looked heavily into the jansen sylvian kind of relationship and i really think that they were meant to make the records that they did make together and i really feel like that's finished and now they're not together and that's it feels fine For those at an entry level who are just hearing these names today and the interwovenness of the brother Mm, and mm. the two that were working together, talk to us about that, how that works. Well, I guess they shared a bedroom so that, you know, they were playing each other records and stuff like that. I remember like when Jeremy and I were young. This is Jeremy from my former band. Yep. Well, he worked in a record store, so I was constantly going in there and, you know, I met him in a record store on a Saturday morning and by one o'clock we were working on our first track. Can I hope that was Big Star on McGill Road? No, no. I think it, it was CC Records at Colonnades. And he also worked in Rundle Mall with CCs in Rundle Mall as well. Yeah. So he would alternate between shops and stuff like that. Yeah. I met him on a Saturday morning. We just struck up a conversation. He said he was recording. I was like, right, I've got to get in on this. This guy knows how to record. So went around his place about one o'clock. I'll just never forget it because I got in the door and he was like giving me the shush, you know, while he was hitting a guitar with a jeweler's hammer and singing into the earphone of headphones. <laughs> I was like, this is fantastic. This is what I want to do. Like, he was so different. I just had to get in on it. And together we just, we were inseparable making music. CC Music back then was <clears throat> also sheet music as well. Yeah, it was a lot of stuff. A bit of everything. Well, especially in the mall. Well, it was it, it became everything. T-shirts, you, you name it. It was like going in there in another world. Like I used to spend half my life in record shops. I was a brashes boy. So we had Alan's yeah. for the instrument, but then we had yeah. like the music records and sheets. I've still got friends to this day that I met. You know, I met one of my best friends in Alan's. He now owns Guitar Paradise in Melbourne, in Richmond. So like, yeah, a, a lot of my friends are still from the early days of music. Let's continue with piano. <clears throat> so we spoke about... The other piano. I would assume the piano that's behind you is not the same piano. So the one behind me is a 1926 Leipzig from Germany. And when my tuner was here last, a fella named Neil, I said to him, look, you know, are we getting to... It, it, it was... Um, I purchased it from a brass band in Glenelg and their tuner at the time had said it was beyond economical repair. So I didn't pay very much for it, but when I got it back here, I got my guy onto it and I said, look, is this salvageable? And he said, oh, absolutely. If you wanted to 
if you wanted to replace this, you'd need about $40,000. So I, I feel pretty, he, he said, look, and he, he's kind of fixed it for me. But and you it, were saying it was a big band, so maybe for the playing style they wanted to do, it might have been too delicate or just not Yeah, thing. I think it had gotten a little too quiet at yeah. the time. So I've made some adjustments to it now and it suits us and it lives there permanently because it's mic'd up in stereo and I'm never going to shift those mics. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where it lives now. So talk to me about how Matt feels, and I guess mm. I'm talking about the recording process that we hear of that piano on this record mm. when Ben sits down and plays what's in your head. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's hard to explain. It all boils down to chemistry. Like, Ben knows what kind of surface... I need to skate on vocally and when you're in tune in that way. So that like basically all three of us, when it's you hit a zone, it's hard to explain. It sounds all esoteric, but it is very true. I mean, I've just spent the last couple of weeks with my former team and you just look and you look at each other. You just you know what's about to happen. I mean any anyone in it that's been long time and in a group will attest to that fact there's kind of an invisible connection. It's that gut feeling I want to know from you when you're in your space, which mm. yet again is great to be in because it gives me a great connection when I listen to this record again later, of what Ben and that feeling is actually able to produce for you. When we're sort of almost halfway through a piece, I can already hear the end result. So yeah. that's quite exciting. And... The way that my mind works during that or even from, you know, a couple of weeks on, I, I'm already mapping. I don't want to sound too freaky about it, but, like, the beauty of having this space is that recently I got a piece in the middle of the night which I, I can wake with patterns in my head. And so if I'm quiet enough leaving the house I can get out here and because it's soundproofed I can actually sort of quickly get it down before going back to bed sometimes I've gone I'll remember that in the morning and it's gone there's singer songwriters across the world going I'm lucky to get my iPhone open and get voice memos happening and you can walk out in the backyard and have I'm looking at valves speakers and the whole kit and caboodle in the old days, you had to wait. I had to keep it in my head for so long before we could get into the rehearsal space and then, again, get it into the recording studio and you'd load in and all that sort of stuff. And it's just time that saps the spontaneous energy of the music. By the time you actually get to record it, well, you've rehearsed it within an inch of its life and it's kind of lost something. Sometimes your first idea is your best idea and that whole record was the first idea for Absolutely, every, everything you hear on there. And the other thing too is like, I really like when we worked with Katie, I really liked how our voices worked together in the duet fashion. And I wanted to explore that a little further without sort of flogging a dead horse. Yeah. And that's why I've worked with Heather Christie. She's a Californian, kind of got a soul voice, but she's open to other genres. Heather Christie appears yep. on track three yep. on side A. It's called Look Before You Leap. It's yep. the closing track off that very side. How you get someone like Heather Christie on board, because as you've touched on there, it's about you hearing your voice in harmony, in duet. Yeah, yeah. It was something that I wanted to do. Like, 
I've always had the ethos of never serve the same dish twice. That's what I want to do with these records. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't just want to make the same record over and over and over. And, and you haven't? No. I, well, I've, this is number five. I, think, I like to think they're all different. I like to explore different kinds of musical scenarios and genres and, you know. I like the fact that when you're listening to something, you're not hearing that vocalist all the time. And that's why I like to have other voices or other instruments appear on these musical soundscapes. So talk us through the story of getting Heather Christie in this example onto this record. Somehow or other, I received one of her film clips for one of her tracks that she did three, four years ago. I really liked her voice. And Katie and I had, we'd loosely planned to work together again, but our her profession and it, it, it just sort of diverged. And I thought, well, we've checked that box. That record was very unique. I don't necessarily want to do that again to the point where it's like, oh, well, this is what's happening again. So I thought, well, why don't I just reach out to other people? And Shanna Ransley is the Australian jazz singer. She was open to doing a duet. Now this is for A Still Heart. Now yep. we're on the B-side, yep. track three. I really like the call and response type thing. As long as it's done right, it, you know, I, I'm not going to do it every record, but if I do hear that it, you know, it just feels right to have a female vocalist in there, or, or, or even for the whole song, I, I don't mind. You know, originally um, Heather was going to sing the entire track, but then when I was working with Brett, he said, oh, there's a real emotion in your side. Perhaps lyrically we can make it into a bit of a tennis match, which we did. We've mentioned Katie Underwood, so let, let's go there. This was for We Ate, we for, Ate the for the Moon, yep. which was a standout record. My understanding was that you thought she was the girl from Maloko. Yeah, I did. I heard Beautiful, and uh, I just thought, and I'd already written that track, and I thought, that's the voice, that is the voice that I want. And when I played it to Michelle, she said, oh, no, no, she's Australian. I think she lives in Melbourne. So our publicist just got in touch with her management and... It was all dependent on her hearing the song. When she heard it, she said, I think I'm a good fit here. And uh, then she came across to work on that track, Time, with us. And I don't know, it just sort of fell into place. So we all got along really well. We started working on other material. I think over a year, there were several trips backwards and forwards from Melbourne. We worked on quite a few tracks on that record together. Well, there's Time, there's Hallways. Halfway. Halfway. Yeah, 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 that's right. And no, it's shot in a hallway. <laughs> the film clip is shot down a hallway. Black and Blue. Yes. And Guillotine. And I think there were other tracks that didn't make the record. Yeah, yeah but you perform yeah. live. This is working really well. Let's do a show. One show. And then we sold that first show out. So I think a year or two later, I can't remember now, we did another show and then that really worked well. And she went into... Natural therapies, sound healing and all sorts of Un stuff. Underwood wellness. <clears throat> or something yeah, something like, that. It's something like that. Matt, talk to us about that music discovery. Give us um, a sense of where you approach that idea of music discovery. How do you find these artists? Oh, well, you know, strangely, they... Oh, this is going to sound so off the dish, but the music that I love, that I really cherish, somehow finds me. So, you know, I've just had the greatest luck in the universe being able to... Someone says, oh, did you happen to catch that whatever? And I'll go, no, that's interesting. It's almost like I've got a radar going on. 
do a lot of investigation. So it's not a Spotify, it's <clears> not <throat> not a Facebook feed, it's it's not a record dig or whatever else. It's a bit of everything. I love noise trade. It's like a database for unknown acts. Sometimes it's just like a rabbit hole. You'll just go down it and then hours will go by. And I found a lot of acts that I love through that. And and you've got your taste. I will Shazam things in the odd place. Like if I'm in a pub and I'm just like, if it's quiet enough, I'll and something takes my fancy, I've got a Shazam list of about 30, 40 songs. Do you then go and devour like a whole record and then maybe that because, as you've said already, you're into who produced and who engineered things, Mm. that then takes you down that more... Obscure. Yeah. I find that to be a wonderful spot. Like as much as I detest how much Spotify pays its artists and how the algorithms work and everything else, I will look now that they tell you who the engineers are Mm. on Mm. some of them, I'll go down there and have a look. I'll also look at a label too like... I'm into bands that like I lo- well I love Bella Union as a yeah. label and I really love Ninja Tune. So obviously if they're interested in signing an act, pushing an act, then chances are if I investigate it I might like I really love the cinematic orchestra, Jace Swinsco, yeah. what he's doing, like that's one of my prime enthusiasms. I love what he does. It's just incredible. It's like music for film, but it's in a pop environment. Do you find, as the artiste, there's tunes on here that could well appear in a film in a quite pivotal role? Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I tend to write I tend to write songs like that that are just all cinematic heartbreak. I remember one reviewer in America said, Evolatar, they'll never get a party started, but if you're in the mood to have your heart broken, they'll do the job nicely. So... <laughs> And I've had friends over the years that have just gone, geez, Matt, lighten up. But I don't know. It's what I do. I can't. I'm, st- I'm not apologising for it anymore. It's just I-, I like mining this vein of emotional terrain. Do you think you'll ever get to the bottom of that well or are you just going to keep on digging? I, I, I like digging it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a morbid or depressed person now. It's like it's something that I can reach into. And from from the safety of a nice spot above the well, I'm on solid ground these days. The record itself has very much, whilst there are string arrangements on it, an improvisational feel to it. And I guess by not doing takes over and over again, by having the advantage of this space, as you mentioned earlier, to not confound it into a a tightly rehearsed performance on the record. Mm. No, we're having to learn these songs right now as we speak. We're learning them for the first time, <laughs> even though we played them originally. Like, we moved on so long ago from, from them. And so we're now trying to find how to make them live in a live kind of environment. How much do you allow yourself and the group to improvise during those live performances? Oh, no, that's fine. And everybody will. But you need to format it so that it's, you know, got a beginning, middle and an end. You've worked with the likes of James Brown yep. in your other band. What's your view on jazz? Oh, well, look, I, I kind of discovered it accidentally. I, I always, when I was a kid, I used to think that bebop was jazz. I didn't realise that I, I had never heard modal jazz and I was a huge Talk Talk fan. I discovered one day that Mark Hollis had made 
solo album after Talk Talk and I'd never heard it. So I scrambled to get it and I had to import it from Europe because nobody had it here. And it was excruciating waiting for that record to arrive, to be honest. <laughs> he made it in 2001, I think. And I didn't get it till I didn't even know it existed until... Eight years later. Yeah. And so I had it delivered. But in one of the reviews, it said that the reviewer said he'd never heard anything like it in his life. And the only comparable recording he could mention was Miles Davis in a quiet place. And so after I, and that always stuck with me. I thought, wow, jazz, like what, what's that got to do with it? And then had you when heard, I heard it, had you heard in the quiet place when you read that review? No, no, no. I heard Hollis's work first. And then I thought, I've got to hear this Miles's Miles Davis thing. Yeah. And then not like you may have heard the blues stuff, but yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard any of you it. You hadn't heard no, any Miles no, Davis. None, zero. And now, now I know every note of kind of blue. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've thought jazz was... You know, I just thought bebop was jazz, which just repels me. You know what I mean? I just don't like that at all. But this really quiet, like in the, in the outtakes of In a Silent Way, is... Um, I'll just grab it. This was the, the complete um, sessions. And some, uh, like, so he's only released one record, but out of this, there were like three albums worth. On some of those um, pieces, it sounds like they're tuning, but they're not. They're just, it's incredible what fell out of it. So I'd never heard jazz, which I'm embarrassed to say, but I've caught up a lot since then. So since 2009, I kind of like just, poured jazz over my head this is the fifth record mm. does this record have more of a um tipping of the hat to that genre 100 percent. like i started on sleepwalker I, c I could feel this um urge to use more trumpet and then by the time we got to the moon i, c I just got strings and slow three four timings were just appearing and so the jazz feel really surfaced on we act for the moon and then by the time we got to run with the hunted it had metamorphosized again into kind of like or there's almost like some maybe some funk going on in, in it as well but not 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 trad funk but more the way Chardet would use it and that yeah. brings us to an <clears throat> instrument that um, I know Chris Holland of Dug By Us, which is a mm. podcast about new music, but he also dabbles in other things, including the, um, the Australian Music Prize, I think he's doing at the mm. moment. But one mm. of his pet loves is that of the saxophone, and the saxophone is a bit of a starring role. Can you talk to us about the saxophone and the saxophonist on this album? Yeah, his name's Terry Jones, and he's just one of the greatest players I've ever come across. He was introduced to us many years ago uh, through Brett because he was recording at Brett's studio. So he just went, you know, Matt, Terry, Terry, Matt. We hit it off. I said, look, can you have a listen to this? And if you like it, would you be willing to play on it? So he, he immediately loved the material. Studios so. are beautiful things. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to quickly share a story and I yep. want you to then continue about, about the saxophone. But um, in a previous <clears throat> chat that we had with Yanto Browning, who's the producer of Tara Simmons's record, she was such a firecracker that um, Yanto was recording some Ed Cooper yep. recordings. And Ed Cooper had like an orchestra or, or, or a little band of stringed mm. instruments. Yep. 
So Tara got them to play on her record because they were in the studio. At the time. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think Terry turned up to pick up his sax, something like that. up, And then we ended up having, it's always a couple of glasses of Shiraz, you know. And then I said, let's just go in there now. Let's do it. I think think he recorded on the day that we met him. (laughs) And then the situation evolved and then he agreed to play the live show with us. So he played We Ache for the Moon Live. He played with us. So with Katie Underwood and yeah, everyone yeah. else? He, he, um, and I think a lot of that was unrehearsed too for him. I, he said, look, what do you want? I said, look, just play wherever you would like to play. It doesn't bother me. And that's kind of how it is now. So so someone <clears throat> five years earlier, roughly in my timeline <clears throat> in my head, <clears throat> who hadn't really heard jazz yeah. and now invited <laughs> one of the better players yeah, of yeah, the format. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Onto the stage. Yeah, well, I've since found some great players that you know are interested in this style of music and that's that's the key thing you know like you can't just get a great player to come in and play on your record like they've got to be keen on it or you won't you'll hear that they're not keen (laughs) that's my philosophy Um, and I have done that stupidly in the past just got someone that's very very good to come in and they have no understanding of what you're trying to create but Terry really understands the music you know it's obvious and enjoys it as well and since then, we've, we've become very good friends. Like, he'll come down here and I'll, I'll go, look, I've got a piece. I send it to him. He'll send a file back. And it's a really interesting process because I'll record him like five or six times. And then I'll just comp the best lines that I like into the, the final track. Who are some of the saxophone, apart from Terry, that uh, are in your wheelhouse? Who, who are some of the saxophone players that you oh. go, yeah, I really, I'm really on board with this? Oh, well... The one that everyone says is John Coltrane. Right. You know what I mean? So that he he's probably the only jazz saxophonist that I like listening to. For me, I think trumpet is probably I work with um I work with a guy called Sam Sheffield now. But I love Herb Albert. And it was because my dad <laughs> gave me the Tijuana brass. He didn't want it anymore. And so, you know, I, I would put it on and just... It's funny because I listened to um, uh, an interview with Herb Albert where he greatly detailed a period of his life where he said flat out he lo- he had lost his mojo. And yet I was like going, oh, but I heard that album. That was great. It's incredible. So you never know what's going on in someone's life, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's like I still think he's brilliant. And John Hassell as well and that was from working with Sylvian anything that adds a more painterly detail to the canvas of the music I'm right into like Terry sent me um, because he plays with an iwi which is the electronic wind sample instrument he said oh would you like Tiduk on this track and I went yes I do I really do so he like sent me a whole bunch of lines which I've put into a new track which I really love you know I love that he's not just you know a standard trad player that you know is stuck in a box like he loves the future of music as well you know like because that's one thing about it like I don't whinge on about I'm an analog man or whatever I've got a lot of valve gear but I like some of the things that the digital age of music has rolled into my sphere have just been incredibly time saving and innovative and fantastic you know but if we do look at the analog 
Is there a sense yeah, of yeah. unpredictability that it can offer you sometimes? I'm managed by a fellow in the UK now, and uh, we speak generally once a week. And I often, <laughs> he's trying to manage me out of an old mentality that I've had because I've come from an older era. It's so interesting, it really is. So I've come from the era where the record company wanted you to be aloof and mysterious and because that's what being a star was built on, do you know what I mean? Being, yeah. being that kind of entity that they could have separate from the fans that created that kind of desire. Mm. And now he, yeah, and he is trying to manage my mentality out of that era and into the new era which he's doing really well. Like, I really enjoy our conversations that we had. But it, it, the reward for me has been the fact that I have come from that old, you know, like we used to, you know, tape, tape was very expensive. And to get good quality out of it, you had to run it really quickly, 30 inches per second, you know what I mean? Like, and it was, and you could just see the money just going down. The, and the record company was like, you know, itemizing it all. And it was, yeah, it was just, <laughs> they'd be horrified at how much tape we were using. Which is all sitting up there on the shelf now, mind you, doing nothing, you know. And uh, so now, you know, the hard drive is endless. The quality is kind of even better. I mean, we used to do things like, you know, run signals over the heads of two-inch tape machines just to give it that analog warmth and all that sort of business. But, but now, you know, like music's, it's it's really changed, you know. And especially how you create music is. I never thought I'd be sitting in my own studio, with the ability to create instantly. I never thought that that would be possible because I came from the days of, okay, well, we booked the studio. This is your engineer. This is how long you've got. I remember when Peter, my drummer, and I were in another band and we won a studio time in a contest. And so we were like, you know, going in, taking our time. You know, we were tapping the mics and going, oh, check one, two, and all this sort of stuff. And just, you know, trying to soak up the atmosphere. And then... By the time we'd set up, we had very little time to record. And we went, oh, my God, this is how it works. So the very next time that we were in the studio, we had the drum set up outside the door. Yeah. When he opened it, it was like a hurricane. In we were. We were helping him set up because we wanted as much contact time with the ability to create art as possible, you know. It's a real privilege to have it at your fingertips at any time of day or night. Does that mean you have too many ideas now that we'll never get to hear? It becomes like the Prince Factor? There is a lot of unreleased stuff, but, you know, I only ever want to release stuff that I am extremely proud of. If it's not released, it's probably just an idea or a sketch. Album number six? Yeah, we're, we're kind of a third into it. Yeah, more electronic, darkly electronic, almost lo-fi. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's really interesting because you, you're always working ahead of what you've released. And, you know, the danger is that you've got to stay interested in that thing that you heard two years ago. And we're moving into some really interesting stuff at the moment. Which you gets know. back to your point yeah. that you don't want to do the same thing again, and you're not. I can't. I just can't do it. I've got to constantly swim forwards. I can't sit still when it comes to making music. That's why, you know, I mean, it was really interesting getting into the studio with that former band and that form of genre in a way yes. because because i had to put my which biases yeah rock, which pop. is rock yeah i had to put all my, my genre biases aside and communicate as a team player in an environment that i've left long ago which is but it was really interesting and really challenging we're talking <clears throat> two decades ago yeah and i'm getting communications from the band now that the maturity is 
surfacing in the material. Because our debut album, Least Regret, we had it remastered, I think it was earlier in the year, for its 25th anniversary re-release, which has just been re-released as well. That's what started this whole thing. When we were remastering that record, everyone started to go, oh, you know, what do you want to do? You want to do something? (laughs) You're currently listening to a conversation with Matt Kale. At the moment, he's speaking about his previous band, Exciting News. They are releasing their first album in a couple of decades. We'll talk about that a little later in a different episode of Radio Notes. For now, let's return to Matt and myself in the audio garage talking about the music of his current band. You mentioned Shiraz. What is a good South Australian Shiraz or what is your favourite Shiraz? It doesn't have to be South Australian. Ben, Michael and myself, our bass player, he's, um, we all like a nice red, which is kind of like a common thing. Oh, Peter does too. What am, what am I saying? But we, um, we bothered to um, bottle one for... How did I not? How did I not notice that? <laughs> we've got um, Ben's got a connection with a winery, so we bottled a Shiraz, and Michelle did the label, McLaren Vale Shiraz, obviously for the show, for the show that never happened, <laughs> because um, because of COVID, posters were made and everything, and the wine was made. Yes, <laughs> the album was pressed, the wine was made. And everything was set in place and then obviously the pandemic happened. So McLaren Vale <clears throat> is the answer to the question. I really liked it. It's a beautiful wine. It, it is. But my favourite is the Earthworks Barossa Shiraz. Drinking wine is like music. It's just got to hit all the right notes with you. You know what I mean? And so if you find something that you really like, you tend to buy it again. You know, I've bought that stuff by the case not really a beer drinker or a spirits drinker either you know i can i can have a couple but wine smashes my inhibitions and makes me a little bit more daring in my creativity i think and i think you know anyone will testify you know some of the some of the greatest records in history were made you know at midnight on something <laughs> Let's talk about lyrics now. Yep. We're currently in conversation with Matt Kale, and the album we are conversing in and around, Run With The Hunted. Lyrically. My understanding is, Matt, that it's a, um, a conscious flow. And yep. is it a conscious flow that you do over the music that you've already produced with or without the band members? Yeah, what, what, what I do is like once, well, what I did with that particular one, yeah. that particular record, because I had the bed tracks here, and they weren't sitting in a studio that I had to drive to a lot because I was with these bed tracks all the time. I would often come out, get completely smashed and just sing anything into the mic. And I would do that five or six times and then just choose the one that I liked the most. In the morning? Uh, no, a couple of days later. And so I would keep every take and then I would just listen back. And if something fit, then I'd kind of finesse that a bit more. So... But yeah, basically, I just I try to make it up on the spot. Apart from that, digging <clears throat> into the darker parts of one's soul, what other influences do you allow into your flow? Uh, and, and I mean by that, do you consciously, before subconsciously doing those vocal takes, consume anything? Do you do you, do you read or watch a particular movie? No, uh, that's the thing. See, our very first serious album 
back in, I don't know, 92 or 3 or whatever it was, I blocked out all media. I thought, I'm not reading any books. I'm not watching any magazines. I'm not watching any TV. In fact, I never went back to TV. I haven't watched TV since 1992 or something. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I haven't. I just don't. I'm not interested in it because I don't know how much contact time I've got with my art till I die, but I want every second of it. I deliberately stopped all of that media so that whatever chipped out of the record came from inside me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's where I really like that stuff to come from. Do you know what I mean? Like, I will obviously get inspired if I see a great scene in a film or whatever like that. I always find that's really... Sometimes I've gotten up from watching a really great film and I've headed straight to the studio because I'm just vibed. So there is a consumption <clears throat> still of film, but what we're saying is that yeah. that sitting that couch potato kind of no. nearly 30 years of none of that happening. So I, I did used to consume a lot of television. And when I made that decision not to, I was amazed at how much free time I had. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And I just hated the fact that you had to sit in front of... you. It was dictating to me what time I had to engage with it. I hated that. We're talking 1992. So did you ever watch the um, X-Files before then? No, no. See, I've missed out on a lot of stuff. Like, I would, I'd be in pubs and I'd hear people talking about the Big Brother and all this sort of yeah, business. Yeah. And I'd missed all of that stuff. In fact, I didn't even really know who Katie was when I, I'd never really heard Bardo or or saw the shows or anything like that so that's actually a good place to come from because yeah. yet again if people haven't picked this up already it's about mm. the vocals she has one of the most stunning voices I've ever heard in my life she you know I, originally I thought I write great songs you're a killer singer let's make music till we're 70 give that girl a phone <laughs> book <laughs> that's what I wanted to originally do but life takes you in other places and we've ticked that box and it's I'm so proud of what we did together. Commercial television just does nothing to inspire me in the slightest. But what was it in 1991, <clears throat> if you can remember, that you were couch potatoing to, or, or was it was it that <clears throat> even a thing? No, as as a child, uh, you know, being raised on a diet of American television too, and not being under, un, you know, and not having that that cultural. Reference. I always found TV a little odd anyway, you know. I didn't really understand F Troop and, I, you know, all that kind of thing. I remember my nan loved it. She loved all that stuff. Like, In fact, she wrote to Larry Storch, who, was, who played one of the characters on F Troop. I'll never forget because he wrote back to her and he said, uh, Dear Mrs Cackle, thank you for your letter. She was Kale, obviously. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know who the, the cavalry were. And, you know, there's a lot, you know, the Brady Bunch, it just didn't really make any sense. I think the only show that I really loved was The Partridge Family because, like, I'll never forget absolutely being stunned. I bought it from the Music Mouse in Unley when I was very, very young. I Think I Love You by David Cassidy and The Partridge yeah. Family. Being in awe of the arrangement of that track, like... And I, in fact, so much so, I went and saw him live when he came here in 2002 or something like that. Yeah, he played at the Entertainment Centre. And I'll never forget, he, there were so many women there that when he saw me, like, my friend that I was with at the time, she said to me, do you want to go down the front? And I said, oh, no, look, if he does that song, I'll go down the front. And sure enough, it sparked up, so made my way through the crowd. 
And he and I had a moment where he looked at me and he just went, my God. And he got his, got his guitar and he was like, there's a guy here, man. There's a guy in the audience. And he just gave me the thumbs up and I, I gave it back to him. And I was just like, you want to get a beer after? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. He was stunned that there was a man there because it was just like 10,000 women and me. It was just insane. And then I started looking into, oh, wow. So it just made sense. It made like a mathematical sense the way that song is such a fantastic song. And then I, the penny dropped that that could be made, you know, out of thin air. Yeah, so I, I was only really ever interested in things that had a musical connection, I guess. I mean, even to the, to the detriment of my school life, when I was, when I was really, really young, I... In, in, in class, I must have been in about grade three or something, there was a song contest. And I was like, I write songs. Right. So, yeah, that's all I heard was song contests. So I went home and I wrote this really deep love song. And then when I got to school and we were all there, and it was you, you got to win a money box. I think first prize had some money and, and in the money box. But And all these guys were getting up singing these football songs. Go the Tigers, you're the best in the land, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I got up and sung this really deep love song. The kids were like laughing at me and stuff. But I, I had not heard that it was a football song contest. Song contest. <laughs> and I won a Woodpecker's for last money place. box. For, yeah, for last place. <laughs> but I remember feeling self-conscious about that as well. So I do have a really young memory of, really early memory of being in the kitchen at my grandmother's and standing on the table and singing an Elvis song, like very, very young, like maybe five or six, constantly wanting to sing to my grandmother. Like, so, and, you know, to be honest with you, I wasn't that good. I'm still to this day, I don't think I'm a very good singer, but I just love to sing. The best thing that happened for me was when we first got signed, the record company insisted on us having guitar lessons and having vocal lessons and it was all very that's kind of the way it was done back then and I really benefited from that but I remember that my vocal coach said to me he said he he was just this fantastic he was a theater singer you know he was one of those sorts of very flamboyant guy from the dive yeah yeah that's right and uh and he said to me oh Matt you would make a fantastic David Bowie. He said, but, you know, unfortunately, until you find your own voice, that's all you will ever be, just a pale pastiche. That's what he said to me. (laughs) And it did me a favour because I thought, I have to accept my own voice. Movies from 1992 onwards, I guess that consumption level, I'm not saying it influenced this record at all. I'm, I'm just curious of... Of what kind of movies you oh, were no, going I to see. I always loved the scene in the film where it was a scene of heartbreak and the music matched it, you know, that really led you into... I, th- I think one of the greatest um, instances of how that's such a real thing for me was I remember watching the comedy Big Train and the guy says, so have you, wor- have you worked out the music for this scene? And it's a man and he's son and they're weeping at the headstone of what is obviously the mother he goes i've got just the perfect thing and they play rocking all over the world by status quo and it's just the funniest thing because it's so juxtaposed to the yeah so i really love when it really hammers at home emotionally 
I was always interested in the fact that Bach believed he could play people's emotions with music. You know what I mean? So I've always, not that I want to do that, but I've always been interested in the joining of visual and music. If you pull it off, it can be super special. Which is the best Star Wars movie? Oh, my God. Oh, well, for me, it's the it's A New Hope. Because, and I, I'm I'm not saying it's technically the the best or anything like that, but for, it was such a it was such a point in my childhood. I've always been interested in things that have taken me out of reality, rescued me from thinking about daily life. Or when you engage with cinema, you you're suspending your belief systems, and when actors pull it off perfectly or the music and everything like that work transported into another realm it's a magical experience that's why everybody goes to the cinema this is why people listen to music because it does something to their brain that you know and when i was a kid i i didn't for for whatever reasons were around i didn't really like my daily life i just couldn't stand it i didn't like school i didn't like people i just i just really hated the daily grind, it just felt like a real grind. And when I... Do you like people now? Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm happiest when I'm by myself or with I'm, or when I'm with people I like. It's, it's got to be, it's got to be, there's got to be a chemistry. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't even concentrate on conversations that I'm not in a chemical situation with people. And Star Wars just hit at a time when I really needed it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was such a such a cultural thing. I know it's just like a space western, really. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's all it is. For me, there's been like landmark moments in cinema. There's been... I mean, really, like when you think... It was only two years later that Alien was released that Ridley Scott just made a masterpiece that sort of makes Star Wars look a bit silly, really. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Alien is like an incredible display of extremely skillful, artful filmmaking from everything down to the slow burn of the arc and the the way you use the music is just incredible, you know? Whereas, like, John Williams is just, you know... You know, it's like... It's all very Western in space kind of thing. And, it, yeah, I think Star Wars really just hit at, at a time for me as a kid where what a wonderful injection of just fantastical science fiction and... You know, I've never seen anything like it. You know, I remember being a kid thinking, is R2-D2 a real robot, maybe? You you probably know where you were standing the first time you ever heard Teen Spirit. You probably remember that moment when... I played it on radio, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you put it on. I was in that studio, yeah. yeah. And from the word go, you knew it was something special, right? Like that genre or not, there's some incredible momentum in that. And that's before Nevermind was released as well. Yeah, yeah, that's see, right. See, Love Buzz, I was already on the train because Love Buzz, oh, okay. Bleach had already got me there. Yeah. So I, w- I was keen as to yeah, know what sure. the next thing was. Yeah. But The Matrix, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh my God, I've had this thought. So have these guys. They made a film. Like, you know, oh my God, you know, like there's just moments in history that are turning points, whether it's the invention of something new or the death of someone, you know. Like I had a private moment the other day when Connery passed. I went, geez, man, you know. What an incredible actor. What an incredible life. 
I note that you have collectibles of Star Wars. When did that fascination start? Oh, really, really young, yeah. Like I said, at that point in my life, it rescued me from a, a very heavy situation that was going on. Um, I didn't want to play sport. I didn't want to hang out with anybody. I just wanted to sit in my room and play guitar and listen to otherworldly sounds. So the figurines were part of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I was very obsessive as a child. So if I had one, I had to have all 100, you know what I mean? Or if I had one album of a band, I, I had to hear every note that ever fell out of that band. How many different <clears throat> Prince's layers did you have in your collection? Was there just one prized one? <clears throat> it's funny. Uh, I've got an interesting story about that. I did have one that was worth a lot of money because it was still in its box. And I think I sold that in 19... 19- 99 I think maybe just prior to the internet okay millennia yeah right well it was really just prior to the internet divulging that we all had one a fella thought it was rare and bought it off me and I went well I guess it's rare if you think it's rare well sure and I needed the money at the time and so yeah he totaled off with that and I put 500 in my pocket but I think a couple of years later the internet sort of exposed that oh no these figures are everywhere everyone's got them <laughs> you know what I mean like, so he got the raw deal of it. well you know I, I don't know well it was still in its box which was kind of like which I've got with these I don't know they remind me that I was once a kid they remind me of, of, of something that I really enjoyed don't want to get too personal but you are a father so how much does that childhood and play and I guess having this next generation that I mentioned just there around, how much do you enjoy being part of that play of, of reliving in some ways the better part of that childhood? Oh, well, I think my wife and I have often discussed this, that we, we, just, we just hell-bent on the kids not having any of the negativity that we had as, as children. That's the life we try and give them. And if they're interested in music... Or like my son is now starting to develop his own natural interest in these things, but I guess he's around it a lot too. But I've never forced it on him. If he doesn't want to play music, that's it's his life. Do you know what I mean? He can do what he likes. But he has sort of developed a very natural interest in science fiction and drawing and the arts, like his mother paints and draws. And he'll wander out here and just play the piano off his own bat, sort of thing. Matt, the first time you saw him do that? Mm. Oh, well, I didn't really... I heard it first. I didn't know where it was coming from. And then I sort of tuned in and I went, oh, my God, he's, he's actually playing... He was playing the theme music from a show that he'd been watching and he'd worked it all out kind of perfectly. And I listened to it from afar. I didn't want to get involved. I think he might have felt self-conscious or whatever so i just let it happen then and then later i went oh you did a great job that sounded really good you know and he goes yeah i really enjoyed playing it so there was no he wasn't forced into it you know you know i I desperately wanted to please my dad (laughs) you know what i mean like it took until you you as mentioned did a string arrangement for some of that yeah really yeah kids kids are like flowers they need love like flowers need water i desperately wanted to connect with my dad and it was really difficult for him emotionally to connect we connected later as adults sure but you understand why as well yeah i do now yeah yeah yeah. but as a kid i couldn't understand it at all and so i I fell into a pattern of trying to kind of please him so i would deliberately feign interest in things he was interested in whether i was or not because it would give us something to talk about or whatever 
And I don't want that situation to happen at all in my life with my kids. You're listening from afar. Mm. I'm sensing a level of joy washing over Oh, yeah, over you. absolutely. It was incredible. You know, my, I've, I've walked in and my daughter has had one of my guitars across her lap because this is not an out-of-bounds space for those kids. They can wander in here and play the piano. We're talking or, pianos, yeah, guitars. Yeah, yeah, drums, whatever they oh. want. And she was just like experimenting with it on her lap, you know. But if they ask me for any tuition or whatever, I'll, I'll give them what I, what, I, what I can teach them. I had a joyous moment, yeah, for sure. I, I like it when he's interested or she's interested in something that I, I think is one of the joys of life. Put a bow on that by yep. saying <clears throat> from whatever those experiences you had as a child for the reasons that they were, mm. you've learnt through this process of music of what you want the future generation to see. You should feel completely unencumbered if you're going to dive into any art it should only be like when my kids bring me something or show me a picture or a drawing and that i'll tell them honestly what i think i'll go oh i think that's great but what do you think of it Mm. what do you think of your art because what you think of your art is the most important thing because i was raised to think that my opinion of self is what everybody else thinks of me and that was a really difficult thing to get out of my psyche it's like washing out very ingrained dirt out of your skin. You know what I mean? Like uh, if my singles didn't do well on radio, I literally felt bad <laughs> because it meant that I wasn't accepted. You know, we had singles that flopped. We had singles that did really well. You know what I mean? Like, But when they didn't do well or when the gig was bad, I felt bad. I like that their opinion of me was more important than what I thought of me. So I don't want my kids to have that. So I raised them to know deep within their own psyche that your opinion of you and what you do and what you create is the most important, not what other people... If if other people like it, it's a bonus. In that scenario, all you need to do is ask and listen. Yeah, that's right. But I make it more important. When they come to me and they go, what do you think of this painting? I go, yeah, I like it. What do you think of it? I make it the most important thing. Like my daughter is of her own accord. She's composing in garage band just tunes and stuff like that and the other day she blew me away because she's nine years old and she was incrementally introducing the new instruments at really quite good times you know and i was just like i was just so astonished because i've never oh well i wouldn't know how to use that program anyway but i've never given her any instruction and layering of music or anything like that she's just naturally you know it's like when I first started working with computers, I was intimidated. But kids have been around technology all their lives. They're not intimidated by this at all. It's this thing that you should use. Picking up a, an iPad and making tunes on GarageBand is as instinctive to her as picking up a guitar is to me. Your wife is on the cover, so my question <coughs> to you mm. is, based upon what we're talking about here, mm. are your kids in the record? No, I don't think they're in it. Uh, I mean, they. You know, my whole family is obviously in my psyche. Without my family and the love that we have, in you know, within this unit, I don't think I could create. I think it's when you've got a solid foundation, you can you can build on that. You know, I've I've been in relationships in the past that have been house that's been built on sand. <laughs> you know what I mean, like. I've done a lot of work on my emotional health over the years. Like 
I'm finally at a place where I'm emotionally healthy and centered. And that's the only extent that they are really, that they're part of it is that Michelle and I collaborate because she's visual and I do the music kind of thing. So it works really well. The kids are really only there as my support, as, you know, as a, as an emotional backup system. Plus I'm a dad first Mm -hmm. and foremost. A lot of artists of your generation, I'm thinking The Gurge in particular and some other bands, mm. are making children's albums. Now, your kids are a little bit on from children's albums, but was there ever a temptation or is there a thought of doing some sort of children's album? I'm not against anything like that. I can't get involved in any field that I don't feel, well, A, interested in and B, feel that I could contribute to. I've got friends that, that are original artists and they're in cover bands as well. Now, that's all right, but I've got nothing to contribute to a cover band. I can barely play my own material. I've got nothing to... Con- I never... As a kid, they were working out how to play um, whatever it was, Stairway to Heaven or whatever, and I just wasn't interested enough to do it. I, I wanted to... I just wanted to make fresh sound. That's why when I got together with Jeremy, it was just... My whole world exploded. We were mining territory that had never been, you know, for us. We loved how John Cage would just open up a piano and throw a cutlery drawer inside and, you know, that's really interesting. Or he'd throw all his notes on the ground and then pick them up and play the symphony in in that order. I mean, that's daring and interesting and stuff. Like, I'm not talking about the stuff where you listen to the sound of silence for six minutes. That's a piece. I'm talking about, like, being exploratory with music. Not that you're a visual person, Matt, in this way, but what colours do you like working with within your music? <laughs> well, I'm actually, I'm colourblind. I'm CP3, which is the worst. So, Are we still talking Star Wars? <clears throat> oh, I, I, I don't know. My, my C3PO? <clears throat> no, I think it's called Colour Perception 3. Thank you. So my favourite colours are black. <laughs> and I really like maroon. And that's it. Uh, apart from that, I'm just not. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the album cover, by the way, well, that is was, that Well, that was yeah. based on, Michelle said to me, what what colour do you want it? And I, I love the Persian rug in our lounge room, which is, that's it. And I said, and I wanted a textured backdrop and, you know. I can tell you where the cover came from. I can tell you where my kids are involved in this. When you're a dad, you, in, you know, inevitably see every Pixar film that gets released so you can spend some quality time with your kids. And... The Incredibles many years ago, there's a scene in that where they go into a house that has this huge Roman, a chariot, a hunter in a chariot. And then I thought, wow, I would love to have a cover that's Romanesque. So we found an old ancient Greek plate with a runner on it. And I said to Michelle, can you give me something like that with two running in it? So she developed that. just a suit with the thing and that's the defeated so the runner on the right looks very introspective it's like it's looking down going why am i here where the one on the left is like oh get i'm there. gonna i'm gonna win yeah so the one that looks like it's fallen over is the one on the yeah. right who's just going stuff it I, I i can barely endure another step yeah, yeah. i have i have felt like that person yeah. i don't know which of those two i am hi i'm rishi case your And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. 
You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on Radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Murch and Radio Notes. We're in conversation with Matt Kale. We are speaking about Run With The Hunted. You were talking about there the album cover. I want to talk about the record label. Okay, well, when we first severed ties with our previous record company, I obviously shopped around a little bit. What was on offer at the time didn't kind of suit me in terms of splits, everything like that. So basically, I started my own label. I thought, all right, well, how hard can it be? (laughs) And uh, even though it wasn't easy, and that was 2005, I think it was. Okay. Over the years, I've just figured out how to do everything. It was... um, It's an interesting uh, situation where when you've had a record label and you've had management, you've had a tour manager, you've had road crew, whatever, to then going to having nothing, you realise how babied you've been. What was going on with that feeling? Oh, I just... I the, the, just I didn't, the record I didn't label, know I what saying. to do. Like, I thought, oh, my God. I actually thought my career's over. I thought, oh, my God. I haven't got a record company anymore. What, what do I do? Like, I just didn't realise that you didn't need it at the time. Like, I had no idea at all. I've had the same publicist from that since those days because we developed a friendship and he's very good at what he does and it's a private arrangement now. But in terms of like booking and all this sort of stuff and distribution and all that, I just didn't know, know what to do. So I thought I've got to learn it from the ground up and it just makes the whole thing more... Under your control. Yeah. So I started Paper, Rock, Scissors and we took it from there. It was a really interesting uh, exercise learning how to do it all for yourself. And and now, you know, in the last couple of years, I've, I've actually been able to sign some acts, which has just been fantastic. Paper, Rock, Scissors is records. It's, it's your it's label. Mine. But yeah. whilst it was a catalyst for your own work, hmm. you've now got some more in the stable. Can you talk to us yeah. about that? So I wanted to what i've got written on the side is it's it's a fiercely independent australian label specializing in musical art for art's sake and that's it that's all it is so i've got an extremely friendly artist friendly contract and if i find something that i really like all i want to do is push it just push it out because because I'm a fan, first and, f- and foremost, you know, so... And you've still got <clears> scars <throat> of the other version of that. Oh, absolutely, 100%. You know, we would we would rack up thousands of dollars making records that... Because that's what we thought we we should do, you know. Like, okay, so you have, you've got to get in there. You get a loan from your record company. You spend as much of that as possible. And then you, you've got to recoup that before you can make any... Make anything on top of my manager in the UK at the moment. He's saying that that model will eventually not exist at all. It'll be the fan and the artist, and that's it. You know, and that's where where we're headed. And may that be <clears throat> the Patreon or something more direct through a website? Yeah, sure, for absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us right. about these artists then that are under this model that you've got. I signed last year a band from Glasgow called Levanta. 
uh-huh. and they're extremely unique. They've got it's kind of like they've got a female singer who does like almost like beat poetry over. I don't know. They're so exciting to me. The music's got like a bit of a retro kind of. If Depeche Mode were a rock band that had a beat poet singer, I don't know. It's really to me, it just pushes my buttons. It's about you being a fan, wanting to give mm. them that infrastructure to get out further. Yeah, I just want to give them a nest, a place with a look of legitimacy so that they'll be taken more seriously by people that maybe have more clout. Anyone's free to go at any time. It's really friendly. I'm just a fan first and foremost, so I just want to push this. I've got a guy coming on board. Well, he has, he has signed. His name's Will Barnish, and he plays under the moniker of Olympic Bingo. And this guy is just amazing. Just genre-wise, can you give us maybe a tease? Well, it's kind of like acid jazz, but it's got another slant on top of that. It's it's almost like... I think what I like about what he does is that it's there's a real optimism in the music, even though it might sound a little bit melancholy. I've already worked with him as well. like So we've collaborated on one piece, which was just really good. But I just, um, well, I really like Bukowski as a writer. And, you know, he coined the phrase run with the hunted. I just love that. I've always felt that way. I've always felt like I've been running outside the pack. And he also said, find what you love and let it kill you. And that's why I thought, well, what else am I going to do, man? I want a label. I want to be surrounded with these incredibly creative types and I just want to be involved in music until I take my last breath when and where were you when you first read Charles I was on a property in New South Wales and I found it in a bookshelf I was staying on a property with a few other books that were incredible too a book called Ways of Seeing I found there as well which was all about the doors of perception and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I've always been interested in the metaphysical and I think I've got a good relationship with my muse now. I'm very receptive to what she offers me. Do you find that by reading particularly those two books you've mentioned then, whilst it sounds like you're away trying to connect with something, is that why you're away at the time in New South Wales? Yeah, I used to go to a, a particular place and be with a certain group of people over there because it was like another world. I think really you're helping me to realise <laughs> that I love escapism. But I do also love that I've got this really solid rock now. You know, I'll never I'll never leave here. Not now that I've got the, the studio. And... Well, two, two <clears> of those <throat> parts are part of you and a union mm. that you have with another, mm. as well as this very studio that they are, as you said, welcome to be part of. Mm-hmm. So it is home. Oh, 100%. When you're reading those particular books, and I guess I want to know about how much you took beat poetry on board. Was it just Charles or did you get into the boroughs of Kerouac and Gins as well? No, I, I, look, a little bit, to be honest. Ginsburg, uh, you know... And, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, obviously down the track, fear and loathing. I didn't like the angry stuff. I liked the more, 
what I liked about Bukowski was that he he was just such a realist. Do you know what I mean? Like he was yeah really practical, and it was that philosophy. It didn't it didn't really to me stem from anger. You know, like I, I went through that phase of writing out of the anger and the you know <laughs> like dipping into that well. And I, I don't know. For me, anger is an is an easy sell. I don't like the bands that kind of just trade on the just the anger of the people all the time because it's such an easy sell. It's like, yeah, man, we're all angry down deep, you know. We've all we've all been wronged. Hmm. I mean, I've done it. I've traded on that anger, painted about it, and sung about it, and you know. And there comes a time to say, well, what happened happened. Yeah, I want to move on. And I, I don't know, I really like... Is it moving on? Sorry to interrupt, Matt. Is no, it moving right. on or is it getting behind the facade of what that anger was hiding from you to actually find out why you're angry and then going down? I don't no, feel no, no. like you're a runaway <clears throat> kind of guy. I, I think when I was young, I was interested in young things and I did all of those things. And now that I'm getting older i'm interested in more finery i was once beer and dope and now i'm cognac and a cigar it's that's what i'm more interested in something that's got more depth and integrity and quality and that's where my music's at now personally and and my whole life everything my philosophy my thinking you know i've put down you know I, i think it was socrates i was reading once and he just said when i was young i played with young things now that i'm old i'm interested in something with greater depth and you know it was it really appealed to me when i read that i thought wow yeah that's true that's kind of like my life you know how the supernatural or these ghosts that seem to permeate throughout this record Mm. where they come from are they metaphoric or are they actually a visualization of what you are dealing with Oh man, I, I don't, I don't know that. I think I'm, I'm just more interested in impulsive music than you know, like, I mean, I've just made a record that we tried to structure, but don't get me wrong, but like, you know, I can't, like, one, two, three, four, we all play at the same time. It's just too, too boring. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like stuff that's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's a real danger. And I, I don't mean that like, I, I, I don't. I mean, none of this is going to save the world. It's only music, <laughs> you know. But I like it to have an element of danger. It's got to. It's got to be like. I almost couldn't make that record. I almost couldn't make it. It was so elusive, John. Oh my God! Just getting to pull it down from, from another plane was like a real task. So that's why I like because you know anyone can. I could get together with my mates and we could all just pump out a four or five chord rock song or whatever. That's cool, but even in the new stuff that we've just done, there's a real element of exploration. But that's in your other a, band. Yeah, in a, in a, there's a maturity there that's come out because all four of us have gone on to a different life, and it's really exciting to hear that. It's cool. But I guess what I'm t- tapping into, and you're kind of avoiding it, and I can understand why you are. 
I don't know. I don't. What am I avoiding? No, no. Well, and I'm going to tell you <clears throat> is that aspects of ghosts and being haunted, and of course, you know, running away from those. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, I had a partner that passed away, and uh, there are days when she's not very far from my thoughts, and so there's, you know, there's elements of that unfinished. You know, mainly for her, really. I, you know, I sort of got to understand what it was to get married, to have a family, to, you know, there's so many things that she didn't get to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just... I mean, we, we were broken up when she died, but she was, you know, a special person to me and it was, you know, and, and she's never far from... Like, sometimes something will happen in my life and I think, oh, yeah. Mm, that's a shame, you know that that didn't happen there. Or is it also haunted? Is specifically about it? Yeah, yep. that's what I was thinking. Is it a case of sometimes looking at the life that you have, of knowing that this could have been their life as well, with or without you? This could have been their life as well. Now, yeah, I often I often think about her and that she, you know didn't get married and she didn't have babies and all that sort of stuff like it's to me it's like the ultimate sadness that you know she didn't get to see her nephews and nieces and there's so much of life that just stopped you know I, I had a mate die when we were really young and I still think of him and I think my god it's just I, I made it all this way and he's not here anymore like hasn't been here for, like there's so many things that just he was never a part of or saw or you know the internet my god you know you know what i mean like just stuff like that is i, I find is really fascinating and yeah. also those memories as i i guess i'm suggesting you alluded to that they would have enjoyed that, oh, this, that this moment that you're living they would have gone mm. yeah matt i'm on board with that yeah well um my friend mal he he liked certain songs that still get played on the radio today. But that band went on and made other records that he never heard. Do you know what I mean? It's always things like that. I don't want to disrespect any of their memories in any way. Uh, I like to, you know, it's funny, like, I always, I, ha I had a friend that died in Morphevale in high school. I think I was in year 10. He just started first year. Halfway through the year, he died. I remember where he died on South Road. And I always say his name as I drive through that crossing because it's only fair. And my family, no, I do it kind of, I do it to remember him because it's just, it just seems so unfair. Mm. Well, what about that question of spirituality as well? Do you, do, you, do you spend any time thinking about if they're in a different place and having a different life? No, I don't. I, I've, I deliberately don't try to think about what another plane is, what it exists like. I think for thousands and thousands of years, humans have tried to conjure it, write about it, force their beliefs on other people about it. I do, though, think a lot about mortality. Like when I was a kid, I just I just knew that I had forever. I just I could see this thousand yard stare on my life. Like I was going to be very old, but the older you get, you go, oh my god, it's you know like I can sort of see the finish line now, and I, I don't really like it. 
<laughs> when I, even when I turned 40, I thought, oh my God, I can see 80. Like, that's cool, man. Like, I've still got so much time. And then uh, the uh, older you get, the closer uh, that line gets. I won't name the comedian, but there is an Australian comedian who has their <laughs> final gig poster done because they know <clears throat> it's not too far away. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you said the song Haunted is directly regarding that yes, person. Yes, that person. Yeah. Was it easy to put it on this record? And is it the reason why this record was made? Two different questions. No, I, I no. Look, to be honest with you, sometimes I don't even know what they're about until I. It dawns on me weeks later. Yeah. I go, oh, lyrically, oh, I get that. When you let your inside speak, it's, it's, really you. You have to be prepared for what the topic is. Yeah. Like you've got to you've got to not um, filter that. Songwriters say this, but I want to ask you that question. It's like auto writing. Yeah. Mm. I never start with the story, John. I don't go, right, this is the story and I'm going to write about it poetically. I don't. I don't even know what it's about until I zoom out and I go, oh, I know know what that's about. That's about that time that, you know, oh, God. Because if you, I can't just go, okay, you and I met, we had a chat, we went down the beach. And I I can't write all that. That just does, it's so foreign to me. I don't know. People probably do. The best books are the books that I've read where authors, they, they just said, it just fell out. They didn't even know. It just went in this direction, that direction, you know. There's some level of editing, though, afterwards. Oh, yeah. And that's do. got yep. to do with the form of the music that you want Absolutely. to surround yep. it yep. with. How much of the story then, once you figure it out, mm. how, how much of that song is then edited to disguise what the story is actually about or to... I guess misguide. Be discreet, to yeah, be discreet. Discreet or yeah. to even misguide the listener of what it might be about can retain some a level. Oh, I do very little changing, to be honest. Like right down Little to censorship? Hardly any. I've just learnt, I guess, how not to be that obvious. Look, I don't really, to be honest with you, this is the first time like on the fly right now that I'm really thinking about the process. I... Never really give it much thought at all. Like, I beguiled the first track off the album. That fell out in, like, literally, like, five minutes. I was like, I, I had to keep up with it. It was that instant. And then... Lyrically and musically, Oh, musically. Course. That that yeah. was really odd because that came at the same time. That one of those rare ones. And then afterwards, I, I was like, oh, well, I know what that's about. Yeah, that's Did- about a particular time. In my life, it's like that. Did that urgency also make the decision that it was going to be first on the album in any way? No, strangely, I wanted it to be the last track. Why I gave it such a linear fade. Like I just, I love those albums when I was a kid, where I was like listening right to the very end. I would even turn my volume up just to hear those last sort of different patterns the drummer was playing. You know, I loved the fade. In fact, we had a huge discussion about this in the studio just last week. But it just it just said, I'm going first. In September 2020, Fool's Aaron got a special edition. Why should we check that out if we've already checked out the original? Talk us through about the special edition that was released. Oh, okay, well, this, this is really interesting. The special edition came about because, well, a, my manager said, look, Bandcamp are really pushing hard for artists to receive what they feel that they're due without a cut from the distributor. 
day a month, they'll waive all fees, no matter what you sell, right? So it's a good time to try and earn some money. Not only that, he really likes that record. He said, have you got anything extra you can put on it? And I was like, oh, okay, I do. So I put some demos that I did for it. He said, well, A, your, your hardcore fans will really dig that. And B, it's such a great record. Who cares that it's 12 years old? Like, re-release it. Bring the attention back on it because who cares now? It's so what? So what? It's 12 years old. Because I said to him, look, it's not really indicative of where I am now. And he goes, it doesn't matter. It's got some great stuff on it. And as it was, a reviewer wrote a review of Lucky Star as though I'd just written it last week, as though it was fresh as a daisy. I thought, wow, he's right. It doesn't really matter. You can release your old stuff tomorrow. And I've never had this thinking before. This is all new to me because, like, once it's done, put it in a drawer, that's it, you know. (laughs) Matt Cowell, thanks very much for doing Radio Notes. Man, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Matt Carhill of Evolata. Latest album is Run With The Hunted, out on Paper Rock Scissor Records. They can be found online at evolata.com. Next episode, Season 3, starts with Nashville music pair Royal South. Thanks very much to Matt for being very open and candid in our conversation in his studio. That other band of his we will have a chat hopefully when their new album the first in a couple of decades comes out this is the end of season two of radio notes starting next season will be i was in nashville actually it's my first trip to nashville and i was with the the girlfriend i split up with we were in nashville because we had sent a bunch of my demo songs to a bunch of publishers and record labels and we Literally, we sent hundreds of these things and they were on cassette tape. We got maybe eight replies, but they were incredible replies. BMG Music Publishing, Sony Records, you know, just huge, huge, amazing replies. And I was doing these um, these meetings, just scared to death. My girlfriend was pretending she was my manager and I was talking to my dad on the phone about how the meetings were going and stuff. And then my dad, uh, my dad had a, Heart attack. That's Glenn Mitchell of Royal South. Sarah Beth and Glenn will be our first guests for the new season of Radio Notes, followed straight after by Nathan Foley. You'll probably know him from High Five. He's now a solo artist. And then a guy called Don McLean. It's the 50th anniversary of American Pie in 2021, the later part thereof. We'll be starting the year with a conversation with him. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Radio Notes.